name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to the Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. We're going to stick with benchmarks for this episode, given the importance and the sheer scale of this issue. In the last episode, we talked to the UK FCA's Edwin Schooling Latter and took a whirlwind tour around the key issues relating to LIBOR and its expected demise after the end of 2021. In this episode, we'll explore what's actually involved in transitioning businesses from LIBOR to alternative reference rates. We'll look at the progress that has been made and the important milestones between now and the end of next year. Given the complexities of transitioning to new benchmarks, working groups have been set up in the major jurisdictions, made up of representatives from both the public and the private sectors. In the US, the Alternative Reference Rate Committee, or ARC, has been charting the industry course for the move from US dollar LIBOR to SOFA, while in the UK, the Working Group on Sterling Risk-Free Reference Rates has been overseeing the switch from LIBOR to SONIA. Today we'll be talking to Francis Hinden, Vice President of Treasury Operations at Shell and Vice Chair of the Sterling Risk-Free Rate Working Group. We'll also be talking to Tom Whip, who's Vice Chairman of Institutional Securities at Morgan Stanley and also Chair of the ARC. With me is Scott Amalia, ISDA's Chief Executive. So Scott, you'll be talking to two people who really have a very close insight into the steps the industry needs to take in order to prepare for the end of LIBOR. That's right. And as you said, we received the regulator view in the last episode. Now we'll be able to find out how the transition is progressing at the industry level. This is an opportunity to dig down into what firms need to be doing now and the milestones that they need to meet through 2021. I also want to hear from Tom and Francis about the role of fallbacks. As we heard in the last episode, ISDA recently published a robust fallback methodology for derivatives linked to key IBORs, with those fallbacks coming into effect on January 25th, 2021. We talked about this with Edwin Schooling Ladder from the FCA in the last episodes, and I'd like to get the industry view here today. Absolutely. Well, let's get straight to it then. Shall we bring Francis and Tom on? Tom, Francis, welcome and thank you very much for joining us on The Swap. Now, we've just had 14 months left until LIBOR could cease to exist. So let me start by asking a simple question. Will the industry be ready? Francis, can I start with you? Sure. And thanks for inviting me. Will the industry be ready? The big players will be. The big banks, the big corporates, the people in the major countries, the LIBOR countries who've been involved with this transition process for years, they will be ready. The real question is, can they drag the rest of the world along with them? The small players, the SMEs. The problem is LIBOR is pervasive. It's everywhere. And simply solving the big problems in derivatives, loans and bonds will not solve the rest of the world. So I'm going with, I hope so. Tom, what have you seen from a bank perspective? I'm very optimistic, Scott. I think a lot of the recent developments have really shifted the tone to execution. I think part of this shift in tone that we've seen with, uh, obviously, the ISDA protocol, CCP conversions are beginning to really converge. And I think having, you know, I think clarity around the deadline, because a lot of the discussions over the last several years are about will it or won't it. And then I think that, you know, what we've seen is that I think, you know, pretty much all market participants know that they cannot rely on LIBOR beyond the end of 2021. So with all that put together with a deadline and also the prospect of financial consequence for those who aren't ready, you know, I'm very optimistic that we will uh, that we'll get there. I think that's a great point. 
I would have to say from an ISDA standpoint, we have seen a major and significant increase in, in awareness and preparations. You can tell that by the conversations we're having with our, our members and at, at conferences, it's certainly come up a long way in terms of preparedness. Now, Tom, you're the chair of the U.S. Alternative Reference Rate Committee. And Francis, you've been the vice chair of the working group on the Sterling Risk-Free Rate Reference Rates Committee. What milestones have your respective working groups set for the transition? Tom, I'll start with you on this one. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, we've actually, again, uh, similarly, we're now sort of reaching this point of execution. So one of the key things is uh, just very recently, we put out a best practice and then amended that best practice to encourage market participants to uh, adopt the, pro- the ISDA protocol as soon as possible. And then we updated that best practice basically to encourage large market participants and dealers to sign up during the uh, escrow period. So we really feel that, you know, to some degree, the intersection between between these working groups and the great work that's happening at ISDA is now really coming together. So the first thing is really we've gotten behind very directly in support of the ISDA protocol. We're also beginning to hit some of the uh, key dates on our best practices that we released back at the end of May. One of those being syndicated loans and bilateral loans and encouraging market participants to use the uh, hardwired fallback. So we're beginning to cross through many of the things that we saw and we did in many cases take a page out of the book of the UK risk-free rate work group in terms of setting some date-specific milestones for the market that, although are voluntary in nature, do give people a pretty clear path and a really good run book on how to have the smoothest transition possible. So best practices are out. We have date-specific milestones. I'd say most recently, though, I think our focus has really been in ensuring that we can, at the ARC, be very, very supportive of uh, adoption of the ISDA protocol. All right. Francis, how about the UK effort? Fairly similar answer that we did a revised set of milestones because everything got slightly delayed earlier this year because of the pandemic. People's attention was diverted elsewhere. I mean, I guess it's still diverted elsewhere, but we have reinforced the need to complete transition by the end of 2021. That end date hasn't changed. Against that end date, we have a set of milestones, just like the ARC. By the end of this quarter, Similarly, we're expecting people to adhere to the ISDA protocol before the effective date where they can or put alternative arrangements in place. To be op- There's a lot about being operationally ready this quarter to progress things. The real milestones hit in quarter one, 2021, where we have firm basically stop doing things, stop new linear derivatives, stop new sterling LIBOR referencing products such as bonds and securitizations cease new issuance of sterling LIBOR referencing products all by the end of quarter one, 2021, to give then another nine months to complete active conversion of existing products and decide what to do with the legacy. And to support that, there've been a a whole rash of publications came in August and September from the uh, Bank of England Risk-Free Rates Working Group, primarily around market conventions So the real drive now to support these milestones is about getting the systems ready and about getting more agreement, more certainty on what these changes will look like. Because there's been a year of people saying, well, I can't do it until I know what the market conventions are going to be. Well, the market conventions don't develop because nobody's doing anything. So these recent publications, not just in the UK, also from the ARC on, yes, You can do backward shift or you can do look back. They're both fine, but the market standard will be look back. And similarly on how to do rounding, 
simply all the all the little things that seem so unimportant two years ago, but have actually been a major influence on why it's taken a while. All those we now have recommendations on about how to transition. So I'm hoping that will catalyze adherence with these milestones where effectively people have now got another five months to stop doing sterling libel deals. Tom, we've, Francis laid out a number of milestones for this quarter and next. Um, we've had some important developments in this quarter. The major clearinghouses have recently switched to SOFR and Esther discounting and price alignment interest for US dollar swaps in euro. Euroswaps. Meanwhile, ISDA has released and published a supplement and related protocol to incorporate fallbacks into new and legacy derivative trades that reference the key IBORs. How important are these developments? And to what extent do you think they'll help with the acceleration of transition? We think about what we're seeing in the U.S. All these things are now really coming together. So if you take, you know, the conversions at the CCP from Fed funds to SOFR, if you line up the, the, the availability of the is the protocol and the great work to get that there. And Scott, I can't talk about that without mentioning, you know, all the work that's happened in spite of the COVID challenges and with all the plot twists around delivering that protocol in a timely manner has been critical because that now lines up with where the CCP conversions are. And then we begin to see recently, uh, most recently, a number of uh, relief letters from the CFTC, which are actually clearing the path for conversion. So we've got degrees of rulemakers and policymakers clearing the way. We've got supervisory touch increasing. We've got ISDA delivering on a key piece of this puzzle. And now we have the CCP conversion happening. And all of that leads to sort of this, this intersection that we're seeing where the official sector is the the working groups all coming together. So I think when you put these pieces together, if you looked at this a year ago and say we would have all these puzzle pieces in place, the picture is really clear. And when you think about a world where CCPs have converted, is the protocol has been taken up, and we're now looking at, you know, at some point by, you know, third week in January, new transactions having those same fallbacks, there's a lot of incentives for market participants to line these books up because actually there's greater risk of bifurcating a book if you haven't taken on the protocol and if you haven't done the things that are required around this transition. So I think that we've really started to see all these pieces fall into place and the picture's becoming, I mean, very much in focus. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. And on our previous episode, we did have Edwin Schooling Ladder as our guest. And the coordination between the official sector and the market, as you both represent, participate on key working groups, which are endorsed and supported by the official sector, timetables, agendas, focus has been, has been remarkably good on this LIBOR transition, which only goes to highlight the fact that it's a incredibly hard <laughs> process to execute given that it's just a little old reference rate, but at the same time, there's a, a myriad of challenges ahead of us. Maybe, Francis, can you give a perspective on the, on the issues that corporates have to face when dealing with legacy LIBOR exposures and using those alternative reference rates? Yeah, so the, the main issue corporates have is the issue everybody else has, which is lack of resources, too much else to do. I think for corporates, particularly compared to big financial institutions, where they are receiving letters from their regulator telling them, you must do this, this is something that has to be driven effectively by the group treasurer in the face of a competing requirements elsewhere. And for a lot of small and medium entities at the top right now, those competing requirements are not going bust, given the problems related to the pandemic and the problems related to having an ongoing business. So it's really... The big issue is one of priorities. It has to be done. I really support that, but there is a lot else to be done. 
once you get over the fact that it needs doing, the two main challenges for corporates, the first is that LIBOR is everywhere. It's not just in treasury. It's not just in derivatives. It's not just in loans. It's in commercial contracts. It's in your general ledger. It's in pensions. It's everywhere. And so understanding where it is, what matters, where it could simply be left alone is a major exercise that needs a lot of what you might call stakeholder engagement, getting people outside finance interested and involved and putting time to it. The other big challenge is with IT systems. All IT projects take months to plan and execute. And again, LIBOR is there in places that if you're not a financial markets expert, you might not realize it's even being used for discounting, for valuations, for benchmarking. All these places, if it's in your ERP or it's in your TMS, that is an expensive and lengthy IT project. So you really have to start now. I think that operations point is a great point. And I think it's probably that conversation has been delayed until about now. And I think people are really thinking about it. Maybe when did Shell start thinking about this problem and, and how, how long have you been working on it? We started thinking about it pretty much when I was asked to join the risk-free rates working group a few years ago. We really kicked off a few months ago. I mean, we've been spending time trying to do an inventory, but it's taken the publication of market conventions. And to be honest, it's taken the the systems providers to get to the point to say, oh, now we have an upgrade or now we have a patch that can do this for you for us really to get going and saying, what are we going to do? That plus obviously the publication of the ISDA protocol from the derivatives point. But It's one of these things, it doesn't matter how long you've got, people will never start working on it until it actually starts feeling like it's urgent. Yes, indeed. Another element to all of this is is the trading and liquidity. Francis, how important is the development of a forward-looking term rate? Where does this sit in the list of priorities and how should firms think about this? So how important it is varies enormously depending on your business and what you're doing. I mean, we do feel very strongly on the working group that people should not be using a forward-looking term rate unless, if you like, they are absolutely desperate. There are real use cases for it where it's needed. Some discounted products, for example, where you have to have a market rate before you start. But for many people, it feels like the easy answer. And we're really trying hard for it not to be the easy answer. So, I mean, in terms of milestones, we already have providers who are publishing a beta rate. So it's being tested to be used for testing purposes. The milestone is for the end of this quarter for provisional live term rate. But this does depend on there being a sufficiently active futures market and derivatives market, which is what will be used to derive it. Excellent. Tom, from a client-facing institution, what are your clients telling you? How important is this forward-looking term rate? From a perspective of what we hear from clients and uh, it really comes down to, as, as Francis mentioned, what are the what are the activities that they're that are taking place? So we looked at this from a derivatives perspective, and people can do compounding. We think about floating rate notes. Similarly, when we get into the loan market and deeper into consumer products, in the U.S. the floating rate note mortgage market is going to utilize SOFR compounded in advance. You know, using those averages that the Fed is publishing. So there's a lot of ways out of this. The thing that we see at the ARC, though, is we did put out an RFP to see an administrator for a forward-looking term rate. But the reliance on a forward-looking term rate is about the market actually moving moving to SOFR so we can actually have a viable derivatives market from which to draw that curve from. So there's a lot of moving parts here, but I would go back and say it really is probably a similar answer 
to what Francis said, which is we really get to down to the use cases and those who absolutely have no other alternative. We want to be able to provide that. But for the most part, many of our clients have really begun to adapt to how to use sulfur in many different ways and many different products. It, it was just a convenience and a, and a behavior, I guess, learned over, over years, the, the using the forward term rate. I, obviously, it gave you specialization and very you know, targeted ability to manage your risk. But what you're saying is we can learn new behaviors, huh? Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. One of the other issues is, is the tough legacy question. Different approaches have been suggested in the U.S. and the U.K. and Europe for how to approach those tough legacy contracts that are all but impossible to amend or renegotiate. How important is it to have an aligned approach among the jurisdictions, and what might be the disadvantages of relying on a legislative solution? Maybe, Tom, I'll start with you on this one. Yeah, I think, I think that you, you really defined it well, Scott, because what we're really talking about is in our own jurisdictions, with our own legal structures, our own legislative paths, we all just want to address tough legacy. And we, we can define tough legacy. I think anyone around this topic will look and say we know what it is when we see it. And I think as we work through this, every jurisdiction, every working group, every part of the industry is trying to solve to this in the best way possible that will meet the legal standards and the jurisdictional requirements that we all have. So I think we are all traveling to the same endpoint. And I think any distinctions that we see between these uh, initiatives or, any, or, or the paths I think are pretty much designed by the fact that we're just really following along the jurisdictional paths that we that we all live in. So whether it be the U.S., the work that we're doing with New York State legislation and other initiatives that are beginning to crop up where we can, you know, we've clearly defined tough legacy as things without a fallback, things that have fallbacks to LIBOR and on a permissive basis, things that where there's a lot of discretion by a trustee or others. And we really laid out that very specifically. I don't think that any of the other jurisdictions are going to be too far from that when they define tough legacy. Nonetheless, I think what we're just, we really are looking about this as a tough legacy challenge. And all of our paths, I think, are pretty consistent with the roads we need to travel in our own jurisdictions. Francis, how do you think about the tough legacy problem? How solvable is this? I think one of the difficulties is we call, we use the phrase tough legacy as if it's one thing. Like, linear interest rate swaps are one thing. Tough legacy is a bucket for everything that isn't easy. And so there isn't one solution. There'll be multiple solutions, which is, again, the challenge with the, legis- with the legislative approach may not address every single problem we've got. Unfortunately, it means that the solution is multifold. It will vary by country because it depends not just on the legislative framework, but among the history. Within the UK, Retail mortgages based on LIBOR are virtually non-existent. They're a major issue in some countries. So actually what the problems are vary by country. They vary by sector, by industry type. So I think we'll get there because we have to get there. But there's never going to be one answer. It's a long list, a recipe of possible answers. And again, you know, the legislative approach will solve some of those issues. But you're always better off negotiating something bilaterally than if you can than relying on legislation to solve your problems for you. Maybe we can come up and, and have you each develop from your own perspective, Tom, from financial institution and Francis from corporate, how you are going to be addressing the different stages of the benchmark transition over the next 14 months, all culminating in a successful transition in 2021, of course. What are your top priorities for each of your respective institutions and how are you attacking them? So the two top priorities for us, the first is the systems changes. 
And they are not a standalone point. It's the intersection between what we can do in our systems without spending millions of dollars on implementing a new system compared to what we want to do with, for example, internal contracts where we have our own decisions to make on how we change into group loans, for example. So the systems piece and the interaction with commercial negotiations of what we do on the systems is priority one. And the second priority is like the stage before that, it is understanding our priorities and the critical path. We know where we have LIBOR, but there are places where, to be honest, the answer is just to forget about it. Not every place or every contract that references LIBOR is commercially important. It might just be the background in a late payment clause with a margin of a thousand basis points on it. I've made that up, but it doesn't matter. So for us, actually, our key milestone at the moment is really understanding where it is we should be spending time and negotiating power and legal resources and where we're just going to let things lie because they don't matter. Interesting. You didn't mention liquidity or trading liquidity. Where does that rise in your priority list or concerns? When we look at our derivatives portfolio, it's small, certainly compared to any big bank, and small compared to where we have exposure to LIBOR in the group. We have a small number of interest rate swaps. They hedge our existing debt position. So they're not, we're not risk-taking with them. And we will have to convert them to risk-free rates. My concern on that is we're still not really there on cross-currency interest rate swaps yet. It's actively in progress, but we're certainly not ready to do it. But in terms, as you say, in terms of my concerns, that's nowhere near the top of the list of things I'm worried about. Not least because there's a very large number of very big banks and other financial institutions working on this who will come and tell us what to do. They are counterparties on the back of all our deals. and They will come to us and say, we think you should do this. And We might say no, but at least someone else is doing the work as opposed to the exposures we've got and the systems we've got where we're not going to have big banks coming and helping us. We have to do it ourselves. Well, Tom, I think she gave you the perfect segue. How are you advising your clients and how are you preparing yourself? That definitely was going to be my answer because we, have, we are shifting gears now. We have spent and the hundreds and hundreds of client engagements that we've had in sort of an educational mode for the last several years, we're now moving much more to actionable things. So in, in ways that we can sort of, you know, articulate the is the protocol clearly to our clients and, and, and describe what we think the important benefits of adoption are is, is, is a key foundational piece of that. And all that then would lead us to the point that we can begin engaging in the discussions about voluntary convergence, right? Without that pressure of, uh, you know, a, a bad fallback, now we're going to have good fallbacks through the protocol. So we can then go to clients and say, as you see the spreads, as you see what the uh, financial outcomes look like day to day in the, at the point that the protocol will be triggered, we can actually talk about, you know, converting out. And that does get back to liquidity, Scott. So to the extent our clients want to do a voluntary conversion and, and, and not necessarily wait till the very end of LIBOR. Basing that, having the protocol in place is a critical component of that because that buys us time to have a much more intelligent discussion about what is the best way forward. So our advice is going to be sign the protocol. It's going to be think about ways that you might want to consider a voluntary conversion and look at things around uh, basically shifting this dialogue from educational and sort of here's what's happening, which we've done for the last five years, and moving that forward to here's the things we need to do, meaningful discussions about transactions uh, and, and pieces of advice that we can provide to make this transition as smooth as possible for our clients. 
Now, you guys have both been very generous with your time. And before we wrap up, I always want to ask kind of a, a more personal question. You are experts in this field, but uh, how did you become an expert in this field? I'm interested to understand how you got into this position and why derivatives or why corporate treasury. So, is this what you always wanted to be when you grew up, Tom? Well, if my guitar playing career worked out, we wouldn't be having this discussion, Scott. I'd be on my uh, third reunion tour with my very successful rock and roll band. But in the meantime, I have had a very circuitous path in the financial services industry. And I have to say that my my plans are the plans that anyone has when they're 19 years old, starting uh, starting in, in, in the operations department at a very small bank. So uh, I would say that this has been uh, just, a, it's a fun journey for me. And, uh, and this this particular project is, I think, you know, super challenging and, and, and quite enjoyable as we've worked through it, as challenging as it is. I mean, this is this really stretches all of our capacity in terms of the complexity of this. And it's been a real challenge and obviously a pleasure working with you and is on getting us there. Fantastic. Francis, any time in a rock and roll band or how did you get here? How did I get here? Also a fairly circuitous route. I was a mathematician by training. I was doing research in theoretical geophysics. I discovered that research didn't really suit me. I needed somebody giving me deadlines on a day-to-day basis that an operational job is much more fun. And originally I I joined Shell as an IT consultant. I was doing operational search and computer programming. Took me a few years to realize that finance was far more interesting and a few more years to realize that in fact, treasury was far more interesting as the best part of finance. It's actually a great use, great place for a mathematician to be because it's both the intellectual challenge of it, but there's the real world in there. And actually working with, with people rather than just with numbers is what makes the job so much fun. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you both for joining us and providing your insight as to how each of your firms are addressing the LIBOR question. So, Scott, I think we got some pretty good insights there on what firms need to do ahead of the end of 2021. Interestingly, it seemed to be the case that the period up until now has been very much raising awareness, perhaps doing an inventory of of what LIBOR exposures firms actually hold, perhaps getting the operational processes already. But it strikes me that from what Tom and Francis were saying, the real milestones will be in 2021. That's, as Francis said, that's when people have to stop doing things. I think you're absolutely right. Um, Both of them gave some very good insight and advice as to how we should pursue 2021 and think about the transition to risk-free rates. The operational questions cannot be overlooked. The preparations and signing agreements that are available to them to manage their risk and, and certainly put in place fallbacks is critically important as well. I think people need to get more their arms around the trading liquidity as well. The other thing that really uh, struck me about the conversation was, you know, I think both both Tom and Francis were were optimistic to an extent. Certainly, Francis was optimistic that uh, the big banks, the big markets, would be ready but perhaps a little bit less optimistic about some of the small entities. And, and she made the point, which really is, it just goes to show how much people have on their minds at the moment. But she mentioned that, that for many corporates, that the top priority at the moment is not going bust. I mean, in that kind of environment, how far up the list of priorities is benchmark reform going to be? There's a lot going on. We're dealing with COVID, right? And uh, we're dealing with a very difficult economy right now. People are trying to manage their businesses, balance sheets, et cetera. So I do think they have a lot on their plate. Unfortunately, the timetable set by the official sector and regulators around the world does require us to address 
IBOR transition in 2021. 14 months isn't much time. No, it is not. And it's going to go by very quickly. Okay, let's leave it there then. We'll be taking our final look at benchmarks in the next episode. And in particular, we'll explore the alternatives that will take the place of LIBOR. Scott, I'll speak to you then. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time. 